0: It's election season when candidates really get into the issues. For instance, Hillary Clinton recently wrote a New York Times editorial proposing low-income housing tax credits to keep roofs over the heads of the poor. Trump favors cutting taxes and regulations and denying teenage mothers public assistance unless, he wrote, they jump through some pretty small hoops. The fact is, the latest research suggests that we're making economic progress. The richest, of course, still get richer. The middle class is mending. Even the poor are edging up a little. But the very poorest, they are poorer now than ever. How can that be? Why is there more social mobility in Canada and France? America's the land of opportunity, right? Uh Uh-uh. It's a delusion, a founding myth. One of many we'll explore in the next few weeks both the grand American myths and the queasy private presumptions we all hold, even if we're poor ourselves, about poor people. In the next few weeks, you'll hear many stories on our show, and one by one, they'll loosen the legs of the stool that props up our poverty myths. The conservative leg that blames social dysfunction and indolence, the liberal leg that decries government stinginess, and the third leg the one we don't talk about.
1: Us. We need to have a frank conversation about the way that our lives directly contribute to poverty in America.
0: Matthew Desmond is a sociologist at Harvard and author of Evicted, Poverty and Profit
1: in the American City. I remember hearing a dear friend, and mentor of mine, Ruth Lopez-Turley, who's a sociologist at Rice University. She gave a presentation a few years ago, and she said, If everyone who is zoned to Houston Public School District went to that school, Houston Public School District would have a 40% poverty rate. And then she asked the audience, do you know what the poverty rate is? It's 80%. And then she said, and then we have the audacity to ask why these schools are failing.
0: In his book, Desmond makes the abstract real, telling the stories of complicated and compelling individuals in rich detail. And in so doing, he reveals poverty, not as a realm where the other half lives, not even as a lack of money, but as a process, a complex social and financial interaction that strengthens the positions of the comfortable. He notes that the word, Exploitation has vanished from the debate and believes it should be reinstated.
1: Because it's a driver of poverty today. You know, poverty isn't just a product of joblessness. It isn't just a product of low wages. It's also a product of really high housing costs and for-profit colleges and predatory loan operations. And I think that we just have to be blunt and clear-eyed about the fact that some people are making a pretty dollar Off the pockets of the poor. And I wonder, can we stop having a conversation about laziness or not? Can we stop that? And really have a frank, honest conversation about why we are weird in the world for this level of poverty alongside this much wealth.
0: Conversations? How many have we had over the years on the causes of poverty? In 1795, founding father and political theorist Thomas Paine blamed civilization. He acknowledged that private property, though an unnatural construct, is the price we must pay for developing agriculture.
1: But, he wrote, It has dispossessed more than half the inhabitants of every nation of their natural inheritance without providing, as ought to have been done, an indemnification for that loss, And has thereby created a species of poverty and wretchedness that did
0: not exist before and so he proposed not as a charity but as
1: a right to create a national fund out of which there shall be paid to every person when arrived at the age of 21 years the sum of 15 pounds sterling as a compensation in part for the loss of his or her natural inheritance by the introduction of the system of landed property and also the sum of 10 pounds per annum during life to every person now living of the age of 50 years and to all others as they shall arrive at that age.
0: For some reason, that didn't take. So we tell stories everlastingly to remind us of unfinished business. Here's what I learned doing the stories you'll hear in the next few weeks. Poverty means that you've slipped off the knife's edge, that a botched piece of paperwork or a bout of flu has cost you your job, then your home, and finally your kids. It means you sell your plasma for bus fare. It means you don't have the money to bury your mom. Most of us haven't a clue what it means to live like that. Because most of us, even when the screws tighten and we gasp for breath, don't spiral down into a hell of loss upon loss. Because most of us have won the good luck lottery for a whole heap of reasons. Could be race or background or just being born in the right place. Research suggests that in Salt Lake City, you have roughly an 11% chance to rise from the bottom fifth income bracket to the top fifth, whereas in Atlanta you have a 4% chance, which means you don't really have a chance. But that said, if you're a reporter like me on the Poverty Tour, you don't go to Atlanta. You go to Ohio.
2: Well, right now we're heading out uh, Route 50. uh, I mean, in general, all this is is part of the uh, southeastern Ohio, Appalachian region.
0: Why Ohio? Well, I went because... Like Neapolitan ice cream, you get the three main flavors of poverty in a single container Appalachia for white, Cleveland for black, and manufacturing dead zones like Youngstown for the rust colored variety.
2: We've always had a higher rate of poverty in the Appalachian areas because, you know, even at its peak, back at the turn of the last century, when we had coal mining jobs and jobs in timber, there were still more people than jobs.
0: Jack Freck has spent his entire life battling to preserve aid to the poor, including 33 years as welfare director in an Appalachian county. Standing by his black SUV, he's gray-haired, bemused, verging on skeptical, and yet still game, despite having escorted countless reporters, like me, on the Appalachian leg of their poverty tour, past rusted trailers and shacks and a few creeks tinted a bright chemical yellow.
2: When they were setting up a coal mine somewhere, and they would throw up these wooden houses in a day, they'd either be, you know, four rooms in a box shape, or they had... They're called shotgun houses that were maybe uh, three rooms in a line. When I came here in the early 70s as a caseworker, there were hundreds and hundreds of those houses out there. Most of them had electricity at that point, but did not have running water.
0: You know he said all this before. Some 30-odd years, the same tour, the same story.
1: In
2: the last 20 years, the other thing that we've seen is families are doubling and tripling up in these old houses kids are sleeping on the floor or three or four to a bed. He's Uh, trying
0: to make the invisible visible.
2: Unless you have some reason to take a state road out to a county road and then a township road off the county road and a dirt road off another dirt road, you're not going to see them because that's where they are. And I think it lends itself to this this whole idea that things aren't that bad.
0: And he definitely disposes of that idea because now you see. The hard part, he explains as the day fades and we repair to his airy, well appointed home nestled in the woods, the hard part isn't getting the media to see how bad it is. It's getting us to understand why, because we kind of think we already know.
2: You know, I think my first contact with the media in dealing with this really started back in the late 70s, around the time I took the job as a welfare director. And one of the things that you constantly deal with in this field is that people just, if you're not poor, it's not likely that you even know someone who's poor. And you certainly know very little about their lives. People deal in misperceptions. And like stereotypes. what? Well, I think the idea that, that poor people are lazy. There is no misperception about poor people that is greater. There needs to be a reason why are we unwilling to share with them. And the best way is to say they are poor through their own fault. We've gone so far in this country as to actually say that sharing with them hurts them. Giving them help creates dependency, uh, which somehow we don't apply to Social Security, unemployment compensations, veterans' benefits, tax breaks for uh, mortgage payments, all the other things that everyone gets. I mean, Medicaid, which of course is, is welfare too. Almost everyone has to go on Medicaid. And yet, no one looks down on them because they got old and had to go into a nursing home and could never possibly afford the cost to keep them there. So we're very specific about who we decide is on welfare and who, who isn't. And we overlook the fact that, you know, the average length of time of people on welfare is about two years. I mean, you know, again, it's all in the matter of the way we label things.
0: So, you talked about this prevalent myth Within the context of your first brush with the media, tie that together.
2: Well, I think for me, the way to advocate for poor people was to shine a light on them. To shine a light on them to show that this could happen to any of us. I think, though, that uh, as time went on, I I became much more aware of how much of this had to do with uh, racism. How much of this had to do with sexism. How much of this had to do with other issues that had nothing to do with someone's ability or how hard they wanted to work or didn't want to work. I mean, you, know, you can take almost the same stereotypes that we apply to poor people and get away with now. And you can see how for hundreds of years we applied those same stereotypes to black people.
0: So he worked with big media to undermine those stereotypes over and over again. We see the autographed pictures of network news stars, the snapshots and thank you notes scattered all over his house. Watching the videos of Jack's network appearances, you can literally see him age, each time a little grayer, a little stouter, but always the same passion. In 94 with Deborah Amos on ABC News Nightline.
2: People here are able to find shelter in all kinds of places, and, you know, garages and uh, small campers and trailers and things like that.
1: Similar places don't have running
2: water. Some of them don't have electricity.
1: You might say that Jack Freck is an expert on welfare, the director of human services in Athens County, Ohio, the heart of Appalachia.
3: He's been working
1: with the poor. In 95 with
0: Chris Burry on Nightline. Jack
3: Freck, in charge of welfare for a poor Appalachian County in Ohio, says even less money will be available in times of recession when the welfare ranks inevitably grow.
2: I think it will have that desired effect. It will save money it will be at the expense of poor people. In 2006 on Good Morning America. At this point in our county, there are almost no manufacturers left. The last uh, three or four of them that offered you know, relatively decent jobs with full benefits, they're all gone. In 2010 with
0: Ann Curry on NBC Dateline. Athens County Welfare Director Jack Frack sees many young mothers like Crystal and says state and federal programs just don't help them
2: enough. Our staff work their butts off to get these people every dime they can. But at the end of the day, we send them out of here knowing that it's very likely that the last couple weeks of the month, they're going to have to go to a food pantry to get enough food to eat.
0: You sound a bit angry about this. I'm very angry about this. Poor people. Like poverty, anger comes in flavors. And here, Jax is tinged with a kind of smoldering heartache. But back in 93, on CBS's Eye to Eye with Connie Chung, the experience elicited something closer to outrage. Listen to this. Soon, one of every three babies in America will be born to an unwed mother. The tragedy is, two out of three families headed by single mothers live in poverty. It's a crisis that's pumping up the crime rate and choking the taxpayer. The angle pursued in this segment was clearly shared by then-correspondent Bernard Goldberg, now conservative media critic and Fox News contributor. Here's Goldberg in
2: the piece. Connie, imagine an America with millions more poor people than we have
1: now. You may not have to imagine long.
0: His piece featured author Charles Murray, ardent promoter of the idea that welfare leads to illegitimate children, which breeds more poverty and crime. That, in fact, the best course was to root out illegitimacy at its source.
2: There is a feeling that this plan to end welfare for single mothers is not just a half-baked crazy idea. I think it's a dangerous, frightening prospect. Jack Freck is in charge of the welfare system in Athens County. We're justifying what essentially, in my mind, is is an immoral decision by saying that we're doing this as a favor to them. Essentially, we would be taking millions and millions of dollars out of our poorest communities, and we would see people suffer greatly. But if they suffered greatly, that's precisely the point. They might not have these kids. Well, they might starve to death, too. That was Jack's
0: worst media experience. His best, never to be repeated, had occurred nine years earlier in 1991, courtesy of ABC News.
2: Apparently there was some concern by Peter Jennings and his producers that they were doing a considerable amount of coverage of the problems that Kurdish children were having as a result of the war, and there was this huge outpouring of people in this country wanting to help those people. They were concerned about this.
3: The crisis for Kurdish children simply reminded us that 12 million American children have a daily crisis as well, and that we should come and take a closer look at it.
0: Naturally, they chose Ohio.
3: Our unusual concentration on children in poverty is going to last a couple of weeks. This week, here in Ohio, because all the statistics and many of the situations match the rest of the country.
2: And naturally, they called Jack Freck. Peter Jennings came down, and you know him and I spent the day. We went out and walked around. They shot a video of poor families, interviewed lots of people. They had correspondence in three or four locations in Ohio. And then throughout the week, it would leave the newscast, and it would be something that happened that
3: day. When you get close to the poor, you recognize right away that very often the level of assistance which they get from government doesn't even lift them up to the legal poverty line, let alone above it which seems to say that your congressmen and your state legislators have failed to recognize that children and families in poverty are a national disaster. In your name, they often argue about other priorities and welfare cheats. 12 million American children who cheat. The
2: overwhelming response they got was that we don't believe this. The pictures you're showing us of these poor families and how they're living, we don't believe this is happening in America. And we're horrified. So that was, you know, their attempt to shine a light on this. I mean, this was not all sweetness and light. And, I mean, they showed a drug-addicted mom over, I think, a Dayton in some place. Her baby was in an incubator. They had, you know, some poor kid up in uh, Columbus, like a 10-year-old boy, and he was taking responsibility for his siblings. And, you know, it was, I thought, excellent reporting about what was happening you know you're you're convinced that if people only saw this if they only knew it would make a difference so you can imagine my perspective on this when you know peter jennings hearing him do a broadcast every night literally saying the words that i had told him earlier that day about you know what benefits are what problems are what struggles are you know here's the most you know famous renowned newscaster at the time and a huge audience huge audience you must have thought This is the moment. Yes, absolutely. And I was thrilled. I was 42 years old, and I thought, that's it. We're done here. You know, we've solved poverty. And then? And then nothing. Nothing. Actually, a report
0: released around that time by Senator Jay Rockefeller did spur legislation on child health insurance. But there was no effort to halt the decline in cash assistance to poor families in Ohio. And elsewhere. Not then,
2: and certainly not now. It's gone in the other direction. People are less sympathetic. They're harsher now. I mean, you know, you will see folks now, you know, begin to also rail against welfare, even though there's hardly anyone left on welfare. In in Ohio, 75% of the cash assistance welfare cases are child-only cases. There's only 15,000 adults left on cash assistance in Ohio. You know, we have eliminated cash assistance. You know, we don't have these kids living in orphanages. We have them living with grandma instead because the families have fallen apart, and we no longer support families that stay together. So the conservatives have won the day. They've won, and we're still not happy about it. We still don't give them credit even when they go out and work. You know, they have to work off their benefits. They do. We still don't give them credit for it. We still think they're awful and terrible. So, you know, that's what I've seen evolve over all of this, and that's how I've kind of seen the media reaction to this or non-reaction at this point. There is some renewed attention now because of the 20th anniversary of welfare reform. I had a lot of contact with folks lately. People call me up, background information, whatever. Yes, well, I mean, you know, let's just put it on the table. I have absolutely no, no expectations whatsoever that this will move the needle one iota for a change, no matter how much coverage we get of this. I'm, I'm not unrealistic about that, you know, and I, but I also know this, when Jennings and these folks did it, no one I think could have done it better, but what they didn't understand is they were up against a population out there who did not want to hear this, who did not want to change their minds about poor people. So no amount of information they were giving them, no amount of cajoling, no amount of this is the logical, the right thing to do, busting the myths, all that kind of stuff, none of that was going to matter and basically you had a population that wanted to cling to those things because it justified them not sharing.
0: This is the first of a five-part series, and I'm a little nervous because when the people I met in Ohio tell you their stories in the next few weeks, how will you respond? With empathy? Maybe that's not such a good idea.
4: If what you mean by empathic is caring and kind and understanding, Absolutely. But if what you mean by empathic is they should put themselves into our shoes, they should feel what we feel, definitely not. This sort of empathic engagement leads to burnout. It leads to suffering and pain.
0: Paul Bloom, Yale professor of psychology and cognitive science at last year's Aspen Ideas Festival.
4: There's a wonderful collaboration between Tanya Singer, a neuroscientist, and Matthew Ricard, a Buddhist monk and biologist, where they trained people to feel empathy, to engage in empathic contact with other people. Then they trained another group to be compassionate, to care about other people, but not necessarily engage in the same way. What they found was the empathic group, they suffered more and they helped less. The compassionate group felt good and they helped more. So if you took away empathy, what would you replace it with? A sort of rather cold-blooded, rational cost-benefit analysis go not after what gives you the buzz, but what really helps other people. And then the second thing is we need some sort of emotional push. But the push need not come from empathy. The push can come from love, from caring, from compassion, from more distant emotions that don't swallow us up in the suffering of others.
0: So how to tell the story? The playwright Bertolt Brecht soundly rejected empathy. When he depicted injustice, he did not want us to say, Yes, I felt like that too. It's only natural. It'll never change. The sufferings of this man appall me because they are inescapable. No, Brecht worked willfully to undermine our empathetic tears so we could see more clearly. So instead we'd say, That's not right. That's unbelievable. It's got to stop. The sufferings of this man appall me because they are Unnecessary. As for me, I just figure if Jack Freck is still trying to shine a light, just because, and you listen, just because, and if, as Matthew Desmond argues in Evicted, the inhuman trap that is poverty is not so great as it once was, then maybe sustaining our gaze does work if we can discern that what is appalling is, in fact, unnecessary. Next week, we dissect the notion that success in life hinges on personal responsibility, the work ethic, and all that.
2: I want to erase the stigma of welfare for good by restoring a simple,
0: dignified principle. Bill Clinton's Welfare Reform Act, aka the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Act, changed the landscape of poverty in America.
2: No one who can work can stay on welfare forever.
0: We peel back the myths that have long shaped policy decisions about welfare and our assumptions about who deserves it.
2: These fears about welfare really sapping people of their initiative and creating a permanent dependent class.
0: Welfare and America just have never gone together. We hear from a young Cleveland mother driven to sell her own plasma when caring for her severely premature baby cost her her job. To have a needle in you sucking the the blood out of you and then taking the nutrients and then pushing blood back into you and repeating the cycle is very uncomfortable. But Feeling sad and feeling sorry for myself is not going to help the situation, is it? Does it upset me? Yeah, it upsets me, it frustrates me, but I am that person that takes responsibility for their actions. Why often the work ethic just doesn't work on next week's On The Media Busted, America's Poverty Myths, is produced by Mira Sharma and Eve Claxton, with special thanks to Nina Chowdhury. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. This series is produced in collaboration with WNET in New York as part of Chasing the Dream, Poverty and Opportunity in America. WNET made a short film with me on the Poverty Tour with Jack Freck. Check it out at onthemedia.org. Major funding for Chasing the Dream is provided by the JPB Foundation with additional funding from the Ford Foundation.